Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This particular episode is also part of the run-up to Left of the Movies, a podcast I'm going to premiere monthly, officially in October, but I've been doing episodes here and there every few months to kind of build the way. I've already covered uh, the film Medium Cool about the Democratic Convention 1968, and I covered uh, four films altogether, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Parasite, Joker, and The Irishman, talking about the class violence in the climax of each film uh, back in at the end of last year. So this time we're discussing Sorry to Bother You, the film from 2018 by Boots Riley about a strike at a, a call center with a lot more twists and turns in it than that. And this was a film I watched at the time. It was getting hyped up a lot, particularly on left Twitter. And I saw it, recorded a review for the patrons, and so this is that review with some, you know, repackaging to it. But this is basically what I had to say after seeing the movie for the first time back then. So you're getting a, a, a fresh reaction uh, three years later. But I'm curious as well to hear what other people uh, thought of this film both then and now. Because, you know, with the passage of time, plenty of water under the bridge, uh, time to look back on it. I haven't actually seen it since. So I plan to go back and revisit this at some time and kind of share my own follow-up thoughts on it as well. Uh, but let me know what you thought, and I'll share your feedback on uh, future episodes as well. Now, before we get started on this, I have a lot of uh, work that I've been doing both on my site and on Patreon just in the past three weeks. I put out the previous episode of this podcast, which was uh, covering the film The Lobster, about a week early so that I would have more time to focus on getting some other stuff done that I'd fallen behind on. So that includes uh, Mad Men Viewing Diary for season four, which has just opened up. I did the first three seasons a few years ago, and uh, now I'm on to season four. This is going to be going weekly through early September, covering both seasons four and five of that show. And this is a show I'm actually watching for the first time. So I've tried to avoid spoilers, even though it's you know one of the really great shows in TV history, and they're kind of floating out there. But it's basically my fresh take on each episode after I watch it before I've seen the next one. So you're kind of watching it in real time with me. And uh, like I said, that'll be going up every Monday on lostinthemovies.com, my website. So you can check that out there. I also put up a start of spring update, just talking about what I've gotten done in the past nine months and what I didn't get done that I thought I might. And what I'll be working on in the future. I put up an image post, screenshots from Journey Through Twin Peaks uh, on the uh, basically anything I did in my video essay that required me to combine different images, split screens, superimpositions, titles, and all that kind of thing. So I wanted to put up a visual accompaniment just because sometimes the video goes fast. Maybe somebody wants to look and linger over different points or perspectives or things like that. So that was kind of fun to put together. And then on Patreon, I have a ton of stuff, which actually I'm going to, I'll share the details of after this review, just because there's so, so much of it. But basically after almost a year, I caught up with a lot of films that I'd watched, political reflections I had on the year, feedback I'd gotten from listeners and movies I wanted to cover. So I'll list all those off at the end of the episode, but do know that uh, my belated February Patreon episode finally went up in like seven parts or something like that. So stay tuned for more on that. And here is my review of Sorry to Bother You from 2018. Hey, Cash. 
How much longer I gotta wait for my money? God made this land for all of us. Greedy people like you wanna hog it to yourself and your family and me and my family? Yeah. Cash is I'm your fing uncle. I just really need a job. 40 on two. This is telemarketing. Stick to the script. Hey, hello. Um, uh, Mr. Davidson. Cash is green here. Sorry to bust. Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. As always, we'll be getting that out to you right away. I heard about it a few weeks ago when I was in Seattle. It was my last night there. I was uh, traveling around with my cousin. I was going on Twitter. And suddenly everybody was talking about this film, Sorry to Bother You, that I'd heard nothing about. It may have been out some places for a few weeks before then, but I think it came out on wide release that that Friday. It was a Friday night. And like all of the leftists I follow on Twitter were like raving about it. Like they were just thrilled with this film. And I was kind of piecing it together from these comments. Like, what is this? I never heard of this. I didn't know much about Boots Riley, the musician who is the writer and director of this film. Sorry to Bother You is about a, a young black man in Oakland who becomes a telemarketer, and he struggles a lot with the job at first. He ends up getting some advice from a character played by Danny Glover, who says, use your white voice. He says, white voice? Like, you know, what's what's that? And kind of does this nasally voice. And he says, no, 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 it's not exactly like a stereotypical white voice. It's like the voice you use that white people wish they had, this confidence. So he ends up using this voice, and the way they show it in the film is it's David Cross dubbed over uh, the other actor, Lakeith Stanfield who uh, plays Cassius, or Cash as the main character is known. He's starting to do great at this job. He's thriving. Meanwhile, though, there's another character who is introduced in The Office who befriends him, who's named Squeeze. He's played by Steve Ewan. And he is uh, an organizer who wants them all to go on strike, especially after they have a company meeting where they're told they're all going to be a team. And Cash asks, uh, does this mean we get paid more? And Delay's like, uh, no. Squeeze points out, that was a good question, and they're basically being exploited as labor at this call center, and they should all organize and do a work stoppage and go on strike. So that happens. They do that. Cash is getting all militant, and then the owners of the company promote him. They take him out of the equation by saying, oh, no, no, let them work out their labor struggles, but you're going up to the top floor. You're going to be one of our elite callers. And so he goes up to the top floor, and he finds out his job is to, like, sold drones that are killing people and also to promote and recruit and, and get contracts signed for uh, Worry Free, this company that is run by Steve Lift. He's played by Army Hammer. Before I say much more, I should note I'm going to discuss spoilers in this, this episode. So if this sounds intriguing, you should probably stop here and see the movie if you care about uh, not knowing what's going to happen in the plot. Cash has a girlfriend named Detroit who is played by Tessa Thompson and she's always she's like an artist who is also involved. She works at the call center, so she's on strike as well. And she always has these amazing earrings that have crazy slogans on them. Like every time she, it's a new scene, she has different huge block letter earrings. And uh, she ends up breaking up with Cash because she's kind of disillusioned. He's basically a strike breaker at this point. He's walking through the picket line every morning and going up to work in the top office in this building. And uh, even though he's doing well, he's got a nice place, she's not comfortable with it. And he goes and visits her 
at her art installment trying to talk her out of it and she puts on a performance that's kind of shocking to him where she has her own white voice it's like a british voice but provided by lily james she has people throwing like water balloons of blood and bullet casings at her cash ends up going to steve lift's house for a party and he's really humiliated there everyone's only interested in him as this sort of black avatar of like they think he's like from the ghetto and he can rap really good and he can't and he just ends up saying the n-word repeatedly and they all just start cheering and loving it like it's mostly a white audience at this uh, at steve lift's mansion and then steve lift takes him off into this other room near the end of the party says he wants to show him something cash goes to the bathroom before steve lift can show him the video he wants to show him and he discovers these horse people in the bathroom stalls he goes in the wrong door apparently and they're like half human half horse some kind of mutant he's horrified and steve lift is all calm like no no man let me explain you you don't understand turns out he's been building hybrids of humans and horses so that he can have more efficient labor and he wants cash to become a martin luther king figure who will become he'll turn him into they're called uh equisapiens and he wants to turn him into an equisapien for a few years and then he says he'll give him an antidote who knows if that's true but he wants him to be like the MLK figure, but instead of leading them to liberation, he wants them to accept their status as horse people. And this is the point where Cash finally breaks with his selling out and his wanting to be part of this world and wanting to make that money. He refuses to do it. He ends up spreading the word. He has a video of uh, of, of the Equisapien and of Steve lift talking about his plan he goes on the show that they're running throughout this whole movie i get the shit kicked out of me where people literally just get beaten up for this like game show reality show and uh, he allows himself to basically be covered in shit and everything just humiliated so that he can get on live tv and tell everyone about steve lift and show the video and of course they're all shocked it's on the morning shows but then it turns out that steve lift is celebrated as a great tech disruptor and innovator and his stock price goes up meanwhile detroit has been agitating against uh, worry free with street art and graffiti and the sort of anarchist punk group that goes around it's called left eye and they're pointing out the, the hypocrisies and the the dishonesty of the society but again it's just delivering this message to people it's just giving information it's not an actual strategy to fight power so at this point cash gets back involved with the strike that's going on and he ends up involving the Equisapiens and using some different strategies to kind of get the uh, so that when the cops try and force their way through so that the the elite can get to work and the strike breakers and the scabs can go in and take the jobs that they can't actually physically get through. And the point being made here is that actual organization, actual physical struggle and work stoppage and cutting off the pipeline of production that this is how you actually can challenge power. It's not through all of these spectacle or these symbolic means. It's through actual confrontation through power. He's a Marxist, Boots Riley, and this is definitely a Marxist film, although it's also been called Marxist-Leninist film, and I'm not sure about that part. We'll get into that in a little bit. They win the strike. They get higher pay at their jobs, and it's the start of something. You know, There's a whole wider struggle out there to have, but they're, they're somewhere at least. And then just as things seem to be settled, Cash starts turning into a horse and he realizes he's, he's been given the formula when he was hit over the head by police and put into a police van. The film seems to end at this point with this shock twist ending. After a few credits go by, it cuts back 
for one last scene where we see Steve lift in his mansion and the doorbell is rung and it's the Equisapiens led by Cash, who's now an Equisapien. And the last shot is them storming into his house like the Bolsheviks at the Winter Palace. So maybe there is something Marxist-Leninist about it after all. Going into the film, like I said, most of the stuff I'd heard was positive. People were thrilled that there was a film that actually had a class analysis and that it promoted labor organizing and unions and was like explicitly about this, like this was the focus of the film. And that's pretty understandable because there just aren't that many films that look at, they don't look at these social struggles from like a systemic collective point of view. It's always like this individual story and gee, maybe if they'll just be the hero and stand up to the company, they'll win and everything like that. And this is very much a subversion of that trope. And so anybody who was leftist, Marxist, communist, any socialist, whatever the case may be, they were just thrilled to see this type of message delivered in a film. And they thought the film itself was like a lot of fun, just had great energy, great uh, enthusiasm and style and everything like that. Now, I did see some critical takes before I saw the film, and that's they had me a little worried. They were from, um, one of them was from like a particularly film person, one was from more of a political person, but who also was into film and both were kind of saying look like yeah great message this is not a great movie this is like uh, uh one of them said it's not even that good you know and i and just from the way they i don't remember their exact objections but it sounded like they just kind of thought it was like a mess and and not uh not like aesthetically very inventive like i think people pointed out of like there's this whole tradition of you know third cinema and stuff and the coming out of Latin America where you have this political agitprop films that are also very formally ambitious and experimental and that this was just not really doing that. And so going in, I was kind of worried, like, is this just going to be kind of aesthetically flat? And I did not find that to be the case, really. I think, yes, it's more conventional in a lot of ways than some of those more abrasive films, but I think it, it, it's got a lot of really cool stylistic motifs and uh, and, and and tactics that it uses to to convey some idea like visually. Like for example, whenever he's calling, whenever he's cold calling someone, they actually have his desk drop into that person's room like very dramatically, and he's standing there, sitting there face to face with them on the phone. So it's the first use of like a kind of a fantasy or an absurd surrealism. Uh, in this context, in a way where, you know, we're almost meant to understand it as within his head. But as it goes along, it becomes more literal. Um, there's a sequence where he's like sitting in a bar and he's looking over and he's like, man, I wish we could go into that that back room. That's like the VIP lounge. That looks so cool. And the guy's like, yeah, yeah. And he goes, I'm going to do it. And he walks back there. And it's like this ridiculously crowded little room where everybody's bumping into each other. and got really loud music playing. They're spilling stuff all over him. And he comes out and he's like, Oh yeah, that was that was great. That was tight, or whatever. Uh, you know, the, uh, another example of this kind of absurd exaggeration that gets more and more intense as the film goes along. So I felt it actually, I felt it did have a pretty strong style, and I think to the extent that it wasn't as like bold or confrontational as some of those other films, I'm not sure it's totally within those traditions. I think it overlaps with them somewhat. Made me think of a film like W.R. Mysteries of the Organism, particularly not like the documentary part so much but the parts where it's like a fiction film, there's just a certain style of satire, very Brechtian usually, that I think you see a lot of in 60s and 70s films. And it doesn't always work that well for me. Actually, if you go back uh, a 
few months, I reviewed the film High Rise, which is kind of in this mode to a certain extent, where everything is just very exaggerated and arch. And that type of humor sometimes just rubs me the wrong way. I really like this film, though, because it felt more rooted in like an everyday reality. The absurdism kind of sprang out of that, but then was able to go back to that and be kind of relatable in that way. And I, I liked that dynamic. I also liked that this was a sales film. I mean, I found it relatable just having done sales and canvassing jobs for several years and knowing that kind of dynamic and some of these office scenes, like the, the sales meeting where they're all sitting together and they're trying to like rev them up was relatable. Just talking to cold calling people, you know, I never did a phone sales, but it was, it's the same type of dynamic, you know, you're going into somebody's space. And so actually seeing him drop into those people's offices or homes with his desk was funny because that was like literally what it felt like I was doing at times where I was either stopping people on the street or like going into businesses and just knocking on the door and going in and a little bit of home. I never did that much house to house uh, residential sales, but, but I did do a little of it. So that was all like really relatable and the whole culture and dynamic and you know, the pride you get when you actually do kind of click and sell someone you know whether even if you're already white if you find your white voice as they say in the film it's like you know the white voice isn't the actual white people voice it's the voice white people wish they had and it actually kind of reminded me of one time when I was in this like office complex and I was just having a bad day and I went in one office and I said everything right I did everything but they just didn't want to they didn't want me there and they like get out get out get out and I just like went out and I felt lousy and I went into the bathroom and I like looked in the mirror for a second and was just kind of like almost like meditating. It was like deep breath, kind of, you know, psych yourself up. Psych yourself. And I walked into the next office, just like a huge grin. It's like, hey, I'm here with the blah, blah, blah. You know, it was office supplies. They're selling door to door. And the receptionist just kind of like, oh, uh, oh, okay. And let's like started rolling with it. And then I ended up getting that sale. And it was like, so this is true. Like there is this thing. Now, however, what the film does is it digs deeper than that. And I think a lot of these sales films even if they're critical of the environment, they still kind of celebrate that that feeling and that culture and that confidence. But this film digs deeper where it goes beyond, look, like, you know, yes, there's there's a certain, uh, you know, there's tactics you can use, there's, there's skills you can do, but like don't fall into this trap of feeling like it's this kind of bootstraps mentality where you're just like, it's all on you, you're pulling yourself up like, you're providing labor and resources to this company that they're only rewarding you for with commission. You know, this is not, they don't get a salary at this job. They don't get paid for the time they put in sifting through the different customers and all the other services they provide. They don't get too much into the details of some of this, but they do talk about this sort of wariness, like the organizer is, is pretty explicitly saying this notion. I'm trying to remember the exact term he uses. I mean, at any rate, he talks about the whole idea of power callers basically being bullshit. Danny Glover talks about this too, like this idea that if you're good enough, we're going to bring you up here. You're going to get promoted because of your own skill. It's like, no, they're getting the better clients. Like you're selling dog shit down here, basically, in, in, you know, in the pit, whatever. And uh, in looking at the dynamics from the, the point of view of like power and exploitation rather than just like individual self-advancement. This is kind of the dynamic that's set up there. And I think it, it really, it, it, it's a much more complex vision of like a sales film than we usually get, even with some of the best sales films. And I think also 
it, it relates in a way to office dramas that we saw a lot of like particularly in the 90s like or office comedies i mean not dramas you know office space and all of those um even the dilbert cartoons but in those it's and of course the dilbert cartoon has turned out in an interesting place uh, politically but in all of these sort of dynamics it's it's this idea of the individual against this almost inhuman environment of the office is larger than any one person. It's not a human system. It's just this force that they can contend with and they can subvert in various ways. But overall, the view tends to be more cynical. You know, there's not a, there's not a, a question of how to fight power with power. And that's ultimately where this film goes. Now, I say ultimately because I think in the middle, it does take quite a big detour. And this was the part where I got... I kind of lost it. I wasn't laughing as much. I wasn't kind of into it as much as feeling a little uh, disappointed with where it went because uh, Cash does get promoted to power caller. And for a while, the film follows his sort of personal struggle with is he selling out? His girlfriend wants to break up with him. He's living this new luxurious life. And, you know, he's being made fun of on TV because somebody throws like a Coke can and it lands in his hair or something. And just all this stuff going on, which... I think on a repeat viewing, I would just roll with it because I'm like, well, that's the story this film is telling. But going into it, I had read so much about how this film focuses on community and collective and everything like that, that I was kind of taken aback when it did follow a more conventional route for a while, this kind of rags to riches story, a special individual who's different and unique and has to have his own kind of existential spiritual struggle. And that's fine. Plenty of my favorite films are that type of story, but it's been done so much. It's been done so often. And what this film had going for it that I found much more interesting was that rootedness and like everyday experience that the, the, the workplace and the camaraderie after work and the worries about, uh, you know, how, how the character is going to make him meet. Like he lives in his uncle's garage, which is pretty funny because we see him, he's in bed with his girlfriend and they're starting to kind of hook up and then they hit something and the door goes up and the whole neighborhood's walking by their bedroom because their bedroom is just literally the garage. Um, and then there's a funny scene soon after that where he's talking, he's yelling at his uncle, you know, landlords, they're leeches. They go, what are you talking about, man? I'm your uncle. You're living in my house. Like, I, I'm going to lose my house if you don't, if you can't help me pay rent because I'm about to, you know, I'm I'm broke myself. So there's all these kind of layers to it. And there's just a real, what what really worked for me best in the first part of the movie was a feeling of like, this is so familiar and yet I haven't seen this in a movie and Boots Riley himself has talked about this a lot, particularly in terms of the race of the characters and the actors. The fact that you have like Cash talking sort of philosophically about his place in the universe and saying you just never see black characters doing this in films. They're always there to be dealing with some sort of, uh, you know, uh, concrete material struggle. And even though this is like a materialist film in many ways, it's also makes room for that like personal, that that personal kind of quality to it. And just, I, I don't know, as I guess, again, as somebody who's done the canvassing and the sales, the camaraderie between the people that are getting drinks after work and everybody's got their own hustle going and everything. It's just it was like, it was very down to earth and relatable and funny and like refreshing because again, and this is something else that, that I heard in an in a interview. It was something that had occurred to me just even watching the film. It's not presented as being special or unique. It's taken for granted in a way I appreciate it because... It isn't something you see all that often, but you should. So to present it in this way, this sort of everyday, ordinary life, of course, of course, this is just how it is, you know? This is this is how people get by every day and what they do. 
Uh, I just, I, I, I liked that a lot. And so as it kind of lost that vibe as it went along, where it became a little more over the top, a little more individualized about the successful individual at the top of the building, literally, you know, on the top floor, uh, I lo- it lost a little of that freshness and that that down-to-earthness or whatever. And, uh, you know, again, that's not totally a fair criticism because this is the story he wanted to make about this character's journey uh, away from that. And I think in some ways it's actually a strength. So I want to be careful. I want to describe it as something that didn't quite work for me on the first viewing, but that also not only might work for me on future viewings, but might make a lot of sense in a way, structurally. I really liked the character of Detroit, and I did not like the scene, her art scene, at all. Like, it just didn't... It didn't work for me. First of all, it wasn't totally clear what it was going for, and to the extent it was, I I didn't really like what it was doing. It seemed like it was kind of making her a hypocrite like him. She's got a white voice, too, and she's just... Her art is kind of like a, a joke. I mean, I found it sort of hard to take seriously as it was presented in the film. I think what worked better for me as an example of her her own struggle, which uh, Boots Riley has said that she's the character he relates to the most. I think what worked better for me was this stuff with like the street art, where it is actually somewhat effective, but it also falls short. Like it just isn't, it's not quite enough. Like that to me worked as a metaphor for that. The, the big art show fell fell flat for me that was probably my lowest point of the film anyways i think at that point i was getting just a little disenchanted with the whole direction was going in and then he goes to steve lift's house and we have the party scene and that was where it started to slowly pick up again for me you know if you're gonna do this film about like an individualized character and all these sort of unique situations they're not situations most people deal with that often um they're like unique larger than life scenario you almost have to go all the way with it so also that was a thing where i felt like okay this is kind of a tame house party like i felt like this was what he was able to do with his budget which is understandable but like if you're going to go in this over the top larger than life direction you really got to roll with it I, I wasn't getting a sense a full sense of steve lift's decadence it certainly wasn't like eyes wide shut or something now after that though when he meets with well first of all the the scene where he has to perform for everyone and do the rap that was a really effective scene and funny and like confrontational in a way because certainly as like a white viewer, you're sitting there watching him and, you know, he's yelling the N-word and they're all laughing and cheering along and you're laughing at them, but then you're also still kind of laughing at what he's doing. So it's like you're sort of implicated in it as well, watching it. And I th- I thought that was interesting. And then, the, then where he goes with that after with Steve and... Um, and and cash meeting in this back room and finding out about the horse stuff this is the point where it becomes full-on like a sci-fi dystopian allegory with the equisapiens i also like the fact they have like a claymation instructional video about how this process occurs i think they say it's created by michael dondry which is obviously a wink at michelle gondry because it's very much his playful style and i think uh I wouldn't be surprised if he himself actually did that. I know he's been involved with some political stuff before. He did a documentary on Noam Chomsky, and he did that concert film with Dave Chappelle, which isn't overtly political, but the fact that he's going out to the Midwest and inviting all these people out in more remote areas to come to New York and have like a block party in New York is itself kind of a cross-cultural political venture of, of its own. So I wouldn't be surprised if Michelle Gondry was involved with this too. But... 
this is the moment where he flips and where the film gives in fully embraces this surrealism and at that point it becomes something else i think my favorite part of the film is still that first part where it's down to earth rooted in the everyday but with all these surreal flourishes but i also appreciated where it eventually went with this bold iconic uh allegory and this goes back to something i always appreciate with films and these two poles of cinema there's a tension between them that i always appreciate which is this naturalistic approach and this more iconic approach and i think the film moves from the naturalistic to the iconic and uh, it kind of works for me i like films that play with that with that polarization and, and try to embrace both ends of it but it all comes together in the end because the equisapiens are folded into the story of the strike and i think it's it it manages just really by the skin of its teeth to strike the right balance between these two modes of storytelling and and to pull it off in a way that is that connects and is evocative it's like a high wire act this whole film and i think Maybe if it stumbles in the middle, and again, that might just be my impression from a first viewing, it really regains its composure by the end and is almost more amazing for having gone through that process of kind of stumbling and then finding its way into a new uh, a new expression in the end. And I also like the way the film sort of carefully and patiently dismantles all these other modes of protest and expressing alienation and subversion and boycotts and speaking out as rhetoric it seems really perfectly situated as a critique of trump era resistance where it often falls into this trap of like a, a trap that i think the left has been trapped in since the 60s and boots riley talks about this really well in a podcast he does he just really perfectly articulates the flaws and the setbacks of the 60s approach to politics um, in a very like streamlined way where he talks about the shift from working class organization to trying to move people into the cities to speak out as a form of protest and that this is in a way is a form of impotence. So this is where it's worthwhile talking about the particular politics and political orientation of Boots Riley in the film I saw a lot of people celebrating it online, either sympathetic to Marxist-Leninism or Marxist-Leninists themselves saying, this is a great expression of Marxism-Leninism. I think part of the reason, I know part of the reason where they get that from is pointing out all these forms of performative protest and showing their shortcomings. And also the call center, one of the managers has an anarchist tattoo on his neck. So there's a scorn for this unorganized or disorganized form of protest and resistance that is seen as both ineffective and easily co-optable. There's some great touches where Steve Lift, earlier in the film, you see the left eye group vandalizing one of his worry-free billboards. And then at the party scene, you see Steve Lift has the vandalized billboard in his house as an art piece. Oh, isn't this cool? They vandalized my, uh, my company. Wow. That's like edgy and cool, you know, and it's, it's just transformed into an aesthetic it falls short. It doesn't actually challenge their power. And you see that as well with the woman who throws the Coke can into uh, the crowd when when um, Cash is trying to get back into the office when he's working on the top floor and it lands in his hair and like knocks him out. Or it's a Coke bottle, actually, not a can, because I think it knocks him out and he's got a bandage on his head for many scenes, sort of like Jake Giddy's in uh, Chinatown with the bandage over his nose. It just becomes this motif that girl who throws the coke can she ends up being interviewed on tv and people start selling wigs of the bottle in the fro it comes totally divorced from 
what it was originally supposed to mean. It just becomes co-opted to the point where she's invited to do a Coke commercial and she is protesting. Then she walks up to the cops and gives them a Coke or something. And it's actually straight out of the Kylie Jenner uh, Pepsi commercial that came out a few years ago. And I'm pretty sure he scripted this and shot it. It definitely scripted it before that thing. So like he's talked about how we wrote so much of this during the Obama era and yet it just turns out to resonate with our own because this stuff is still going on. Like, this is an explicitly anti-capitalist film and an explicitly pro-union film, and I would say implicitly pro-socialism, pro-revolution. The implicit is where I have trouble calling it Marxist-Leninist because it has a Marxist critique, but the Leninist uh, solution is to form like a vanguard party. You know, this is like a very shorthand presentation of this concept so sorry if i'm distorting anything but basically the idea is you have a vanguard party that pushes and prods the revolution and joins with it when it takes place and kind of leads it against the against capitalism and directs it against capitalism so even as i'm saying this i'm starting to second guess myself i think if there is a leninist component to the film it's in specifically that very last scene where the equisapiens are storming the house either gonna kill lift or turn him into an ecosapien or do something but basically they're actually confronting power directly where it lives and i think you could see the equisapiens as a vanguard um that maybe it may in a way correspond more almost with like maoism or something where there's a specific component of the working class that's considered inherently more radicalized or more lending itself better to become that vanguard because in this case you'd have it's not just like people among the workers becoming more educated and aware of this theory and this approach and this praxis to achieving revolution it's like a specific component of the working class that is in fact in many ways the most oppressed as well Um, which opens up a whole nother sort of can of worms and series of questions about where how that analogizes with reality and also another i wouldn't say issue i had with the film but another question that arose um as i'm just thinking out loud here is the fact that he uses a call center as the locus of the labor struggle and certainly on a personal level i like that just because i'm into the sales films and had that experience and could relate to that but it's an interesting choice to make because these aren't the people these aren't exactly the people at the point of production. They are working. So like if their labor organization succeeds and they're able to get higher pay and a union and everything like that, they're still working within a system, not just that gives profit to the capitalists, because that's the case with any union in a capitalist society, but actually is explicitly helping the capitalists exploit other workers. Are they a force that can be organized to help organize the larger working class or are you just is it almost like organizing the police or something where you're just you're organizing a force that's actually at the totally at the service of capital because they argue you know but of course then this would lead to question of well isn't in a sense is is the working class is the entire working class in the u.s a labor aristocracy where they're already inherently benefiting off of the exploitation of the third world workers so i would love to see like I mean, I'd love to see almost a sequel to this film. I think it's very self-contained. It works on its own. But if you were to kind of expand on these points and develop them further, I think there would be a lot of interesting stuff to come out of it. 
And I'm really looking forward to whatever Boots Riley's next film is. This was actually his debut, uh, incredibly. He's in his 40s. He's been a, a rapper with The Coup for uh, 25 years. So he's got a long, had a long sort of established career. And actually, you can go, and I'll link this up. There's a video of him on Bill Maher in the 90s defending communism, which was not not something you really hardly saw at all at that point. And it's uh, more common today on social media, still pretty rare on television. But you know, it's something you see more of, but he's doing this at the time. Everybody's just shouting him down and interrupting him like they don't want to hear it. I'm really curious to see what his next film's going to be, whether or not, uh, I don't think he's planning any sequel, but, and it probably shouldn't, but, but even just if it functions as a sequel in the sense of like expanding the questions that this film poses and digging deeper into them, it just would really be fascinating to watch. And I'd also just love to see him dwell more in that world of like the first part of this film and to be honest, too, I don't just want to put this on like a, a Boots Riley thing or a Sorry to Bother You thing. I want to see more films that kind of have that vibe, whether or not they have surreal touches as well. But just that kind of that everydayness that is so lacking from Hollywood. It's like totally divorced from day-to-day life in a way that wasn't always true. Like in the golden age of Hollywood, you had all this glamour, but you also had this real attempt and I think often success to represent common experience in everyday life on screen, maybe in these glamorized, mythologized terms, but, you know, you'd have these characters, like the Warner Brothers movies of the 1930s and stuff, you know? There was, like, a recognition. You could go to the theater and see yourself on screen in some way. And uh, i just like to see more of that, whether or not it's connected with this larger, even if it's connected with a larger explicitly political message or the surreal style. Although I would also like to see a lot more of a political agitprop that says, you know, rather than using satire as an excuse to be cynical uh, or even, you know, a more naturalistic depiction of the way things are to be cynical says, no, actually, there's a way to change this. And that's what we're going to explore. And that's just in itself already feels like such a new direction for what I've grown up with and what I've known in American cinema and just American culture in general. And it's something I look forward to seeing more of in the future. I hope this is just the beginning of a trend. Listening back to this in 2021, three years after, as I said, I recorded this right after I'd seen the movie. Uh, Certainly in the passage of time since then, I think the left has seen setbacks that would give maybe a little less confidence to some of the... uh, optimism that's that's in this film although again this is a film scripted during obama before bernie before the surge in left-wing activity and a lot of people becoming socialists and getting more interested in strikes and activism i think 2018 was the year i'm not sure if it was 2017 2018 the year of like the red state revolt with the teachers strikes in like west virginia i think there was one in kentucky and so forth so with all of that in mind, uh, it can seem like this was in a little bit of a moment of maybe thinking that there was going to be more advancement than there was. You know, the Bernie campaign running uh, to challenge the power of the Democratic Party directly, obviously losing out on that. Biden ending up beating Trump, so it's no longer the Trump era, sort of not anyways. And uh, the event, though, that I would tie this to most directly at the moment is the Amazon strike down in Alabama. And there's kind of a glimmer and hope of that where all these other attempts to challenge power have 
failed in various ways, uh, including the electoral route, which he doesn't discuss at all, interestingly, in this movie. Like, that's not an aspect of um, uh, political resistance that he mocks or upholds. It's just not really relevant to the things that he's discussing. And he was a supporter of the Bernie campaign, a critical supporter. Again, he's a revolutionary Marxist, so he's not looking to upset things uh, through the, you know, somebody taking over the presidency. But he recognized the, the, the opportunity that provided for organizers, for mobilizing people. And now that all of that is kind of passed, here we have a a uh, attempt it's actually i think that i call it a strike i meant to say the election to for uh, whether or not the workers in Bessemer, alabama at this amazon warehouse will have a union and it's become a huge flashpoint uh, i'll link up just a short clip from uh, the youtube uh, show rising where they're talking about that and uh where it's at at this exact moment that i'm recording this it just was this morning bernie sanders has actually gone down there to encourage particularly the young workers who have no experience with unions and don't really have a frame of reference in a lot of ways and are nervous about the consequences that the company is threatening against them. So it's funny, I had this planned, this uh, kind of re-release of this episode planned for months, uh, not knowing that it would be timed well in that sense. But I think with all of the all of the water under the bridge, good and bad, it's nice to look and see that at least... And there's no guarantee this will succeed. I mean, I think as people have pointed out, the the his the recent history of unions is just so dire, and people have again so little frame of reference. They're so disorganized in the workplace that the more likely outcome is probably that they lose. But even just this flashpoint of organizing and building up like consciousness of the need to unionize and the possibilities there and the limitations of that as well. There's been a lot of actually interestingly kind of anti-union discourse lately on the left of people saying well wait a second let's not get carried away with all this romanticism of unions they can be kind of containers for workers powers limitation on it uh, ways to kind of co-opt discontent and alienation all of that's true as well and i think that's in this film too but you have to start somewhere and i think there's there's hope in in that whatever comes out of this now in alabama so it's interesting to have that in mind well uh, revisiting this film in this discussion. So if you enjoyed listening, please consider uh, rating and reviewing and subscribing on Apple Podcasts. That's the main way that people see this podcast and uh, listen to it and share it themselves. If you really like this work, you can also donate as a Patreon, uh, or on Patreon rather, as a patron. Uh, that is a monthly $1 a month. You get huge, big podcasts, which you know I'm about to share the contents of right here, just to let you know what I've been covering this month. Uh, and for $5 a month, you get that, plus uh, immediate access to my Lost in Twin Peaks podcasts, which uh, go up six months later for the $1 a month patron. So if you're listening to that, you'd be able to hear my coverage of like late season two right now where I am. Okay, so here's what I put up on Patreon. We'll end on this note before I play a uh, clip from the movie I'll be covering next time. And uh, it was episode 76 for Twin Peaks Cinema, where I compare a film to Twin Peaks. I chose King's Row, the Ronald Reagan film from the 40s about a small town with dark secrets. So very peaksy and obviously. And for the Twin Peaks Reflections, where I talk about different characters, locations, and storylines, I discussed 
Little Nicky, Dougie Milford, Hideout Wallies, Timber Falls Motel, and I tied the Milford family subplot to the book The Secret History of Twin Peaks. I also read an archive review from my site of a Lee Atwater documentary about the political operative from the 80s, and I offered some updates on Journey Through Twin Peaks and uh, my Lost in Twin Peaks podcast, as well as some other stuff. Then there were all the bonus episodes I put up to uh, cover stuff that I'd been hoping to cover more consistently for the past uh, year, but I'd just been distracted by the Twin Peaks videos. So that included a bonus of film capsules where I just went down the list of everything I saw and offered some thoughts, nothing too formal, usually like a minute to five minutes or so, sometimes a little longer. Uh, and the, the ones that I discussed for the longest time were the films Us, the horror film by Jordan Peele. Brideshead Revisited, the British document or British miniseries rather from the early 80s adaptation of Evelyn Waugh, and then a couple political documentaries, one by Ken Burns on the Roosevelts and the other by American Experience on Reagan. And then I covered a whole bunch of other films, uh, including A Letter to Three Wives, The Enchanted Cottage, Waking Sleeping Beauty, Knights of the Round Table, Rasputin and the Empress, and more. For my listener feedback bonus, I shared everything I'd gotten from patrons in the past year that included subjects. Uh, well, feedback on subjects like Twin Peaks and video games, the Audrey Cooper uh, relationship from Twin Peaks, what led to uh, Cooper's outcome on the show, Sunset Boulevard, uh, the film, the Billy Wilder film from the 50s, import, the importance of the season two subplots to Twin Peaks, whether people thought there was a, quote, wrong turn in season three, uh, the collaboration and tension between Mark Frost and David Lynch, the two co-creators of Twin Peaks, the film Laura from 1944 and its relationship to Twin Peaks, and also Seattle connections to the show, which originally was shot up in the Seattle area. I also discussed the 2014 zeitgeist around the time that Twin Peaks was announced to be coming back versus both the 80, late 80s, early 90s when the show originally aired, and also comparing that time to now, seven years later, and all the water under the bridge, both with Twin Peaks and just society and the culture at large. And then for my uh, political reflections bonus, uh, basically pandemic protest, election, insurrection, and the future for you know both parties and the American people and everything good or likely bad that that might entail. So my thoughts on that. And then uh, I also offered a couple shorter or four shorter bonus episodes with podcast recommendations, just all the stuff I've been listening to highlighting certain podcasts. So if you want to go meta and listen to a podcast talking about podcasts, you can check out that those little bonuses as well. So that's everything on my Patreon. A uh, lot to sort of hopefully pique your interest there. On the next episode of this public podcast, we're actually going to have a direct tie-in to the Patreon podcast. Um, I will be covering Blue Velvet for my next Twin Peaks cinema entry, talking about uh, the David Lynch film from the 80s that he made right, you know, a few years before Twin Peaks and how that relates to his show. And on this public podcast, I'm going to be sharing just a straight-up discussion of the film Blue Velvet on its own, you know, merits, just standing on its own, uh, maybe with a reference or two to Twin Peaks, but more looking at it as a as an independent film. So there'll be a nice relation there, maybe even a jumping off point if you like what you hear here and you want to hear more on Blue Velvet. So here's a little clip from that. Through the years, and I still can see blue velvet. Hey, neighbor. Here I come.